This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Oh. Wow. Oh my goodness. Excellent. <laughs> Hello, Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Kirsty Logan and I'm very pleased to be chairing this event with Jasper Ford. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> ah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> ah. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure Jasper needs no introduction, but we are talking today about this most excellent new book, Early Riser, which has a cutout cover. You don't see that every day, do you? Um, just to let you know briefly the, <laughs> the format of the event today, Jasper's going to do a little reading, mm -hmm. then we're going to have a bit of a chat, and then there will be plenty of time for you all to ask questions, of which I'm sure you have many, so you can prepare them. And then afterwards, we will be having a signing just at the book tent there. Um, please do have your phone on silent, um, and if you would like to tweet, well, you may, but if you could wait until the lights come up when it's time for the audience Q&A, that would be great. Thank you. So I'm just going to let you take over, Jasper. Ah, a reading. Yes, Yes, please. indeed. I, I will go to this lectern, mm -hmm. just here. I do, I do like lecterns, something to lean on. Makes me feel grand as well. Um, uh, firstly, thank you. This is unexpected and wonderful to see so many people here. It's extraordinary. Um, uh, what I was going to uh, start doing uh, is, uh, is read a short, a short piece from, from the book. I think the beginning of the book. Um, uh, just give you a sort of little bit of a sort of preamble, I suppose, uh, what I should do here is I, I, I tend to write by something that I call the narrative dare. Right? What I do is I set myself up with a tricky narrative dare. And if you're thinking back to uh, the kind of books I write, you kind of figure out what they are. You know, um, for instance, um, uh, Humpty Dumpty is, is murdered and somebody's responsible. Um, explain away the porridge temper dif differential in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Um, uh, Jane Eyre is kidnapped and someone has to get her back. Um, create a complete world order based on visual color. Um, you, you see how I do it. Um, this one, uh, The Narrative Dare, was set a thriller in which humans have always hibernated. A world in which humans have always hibernated. Right. I kind of like that idea. It's a nice sort of silly idea and, and is wide open to all kinds of creative invention, shall we say. Of course, where do I start writing a book like that? Well, when I'm in trouble, I start a book on a train. Um, <laughs> And I would, I would advise that to any authors who are present to think about that, that if you are in trouble when starting a book. Because uh, writing speculative fiction, which I think absurd is speculative fiction, which is what I tend to do, um, is there's a lot of different rules and regulations and stuff that I have to get really early on in the book, uh, or at least allude to, so that we can get on with the story and the characters and the plot and all that kind of interesting stuff, rather than the, you know, the mechanics of the world. You know, that, I want to reveal that slowly. So I found that actually if you start on a train, it works really well, because clearly you're coming from somewhere, you know, which is inferred, but you don't have to say, you can reveal later. They're going to somewhere, again, it's inferred, but you don't have to say. There's a relationship between the people on the train, again, it's inferred, but you can feather it in later, and you can have random conversations with strangers. Um, this is the third time I've done it. Um, uh, Shades of Grey begins on a train. Um, one of the Thursday, I think um, one of our Thursdays is missing, also begins on a train. I'm letting all my trade secrets go here. 
Uh, but I think it's quite fun to lift the curtain, you know, and I, I always think that's rather, it's what I always like listening to when I'm listening to an author talk. Anyway, so you'll get an idea of what I'm um, doing with this. Uh, Mrs. Tiffin could play the bazooki. Not well, and only one tune, Help Yourself by Tom Jones. She plucked the strings expertly, but without emotion, while staring blankly out of the train window at the ice and snow. She and I had not exchanged an intelligent word since we first met five hours before, and the reason was readily explained. Mrs. Tiffin was dead, and had been for several years. I really like that as an opening paragraph. <laughs> uh, this book went through many, many iterations. This, is, this took me... I haven't been away sunning myself. This did take me three and a half years to write. Um, actually, it was only the last year it took to write. The rest of it was just me, I don't know, mucking around, being stupid and not being able to write. But that paragraph I was very eager to keep. It's going to be a mild winter, said the grey-haired woman sitting opposite Mrs. Tiffin and me as the train pulled out of Cardiff Central. Average low of only minus 40 is my guess. Almost balmy, I replied. And we both laughed, even though it wasn't funny. Not really, not at all. After some thought, I had concluded that the woman was most likely an actor, part of the extensive winter thespian tradition. Audiences were small, but highly appreciative. Summer players had to make do with the diluted respect to the many, whilst winter players commanded the adoration of the few. The train stopped briefly at Queen Street, then rumbled slowly north. It could have gone faster, but Wales has a 75 dB sound limit in operation eight days either side of the winter. Have you been overwintering long? I asked, by way of conversation. I've not seen a summer for almost three decades, she said with a smile. I remember my first venue, Hartlepool, winter of 76, the Don Hector Playhouse. We were performing King Lear as a support act to the Chuckle Brothers during their one and only winter tour. I was glad I got that in, because, you know... Um, um, I, I've been having this issue about... Um, we're kind of losing pop culture references, and, uh, and Barry passed away only, like, last week, so, you know, the fact that I put it in here is a sort of, you know, little homage. I was quite pleased about that, especially as, 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 they, as King Lear was a support act to the Chuckle Brothers. I, I kind of like that idea, you know. Um, and you can see that I'm trying to bring other, you know characters here back into, the, uh, into pop culture. Um, da, 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 da. Um, uh, where are we? Uh, yes, during their one and only winter tour, their gig was packed, almost 300 people. Never seen that happen before, except with the Bonzo Dog Band or Val Dunican. But then they made the winter season a kind of trademark, like Mott the Hoople and Richard Stilgo in the old days, and Paul Daniels and Take That today. <laughs> Few summer acts chose to brave the cold. The winter could be a hard taskmaster. The 1974 Shawadi Wadi Welsh tour was a good case in point. The band were first trapped by hunger-crazed nightwalkers in their Aberystwyth Hotel, then lost half their number to an ice storm. Over the next two months, their manager was kidnapped and ransomed by lucky Ned Farnsworth, three roadies lost their feet to frostbite, and their bassist was allegedly taken by Wintervolk. Aside from that, the surviving members thought it was one of their most successful tours ever. <laughs> Never realized how strongly the silence could drag upon one's psyche, said my companion, breaking into my thoughts, and how the solitude can become physically painful. I once spent seven weeks without seeing a single soul stranded in the Ledbury Playhouse during a protracted cold snap in 78. Even the villains hunkered down and night walkers froze on their feet. Come the melt, the rigor kept them upright. They didn't start falling until they'd thawed down to their shins. For those not with the calling, the absence of humanity can be debilitating. She paused for a moment before continuing. But you know, in some strange way, I love it. Good for achieving a sense of clarity. 
Long-time winterers were well known for expressing their views in this manner, a dark love of the bleakness and how conducive the solitude was to deep philosophical thought. More often than not, those that extolled the winter virtues so fulsomely did so right up until the moment they left an overly apologetic note, stripped themselves naked and walked outside into the sub-zero. It was called the cold way out. Lobster, said Mrs. Tiffin, without relevance to anything, still, still playing the bazooki. Help yourself, again, for perhaps the 200th time. Returning from the depths of hibernation was never without risk. If the minimal synaptic tickover that took care of nominal life functions was halted, you'd suffer a neural collapse and be dead in sleep. If you ran out of fats to metabolize into usable sugars, you'd be dead in sleep. If the temperature fell too far too quickly, you'd be dead in sleep. Vermin predation, CO2 buildup, calcitic migration, pre-existing medical condition, or a dozen or so other complications, dead in sleep. But not all neuroclapses led to death. Some, like Mrs. Tiffin, who was on Morphinox, it was always the ones on Morphinox, awoke with just enough vestigial memory to walk and eat. And while most people saw nightwalkers as creepy, brain-dead denizens of the winter, whose hobbies revolved around mumbling and cannibalism, we saw them as creatures who had returned from the dark abyss of hibernation, with most of everything left behind. They were normally rounded up before everyone woke, usually to be redeployed and then parted out. But stragglers that slipped the net could sometimes be found. Billy Dufois discovered one snagged on some barbed wire in the orchard behind St. Granata's three weeks before spring rise. Three weeks after spring rise, sorry. He reported it to authorities, but not before taking its wristwatch, something he was still wearing when he died. Good. There we go. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. We would all quite happily listen to you read that oh, entire really? book. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to throw you straight in the deep end, actually. Yeah. Following up on what you said about your creative hiatus. Yes. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that. And do you feel a pressure to mm. be prolific? Because you are a very prolific writer. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, I call it crea creative hiatus. In fact, if I'd carried on uh, reading, um, there was a little mention of it. Um, I think, uh, yeah, Seven Down said the actor, uh, having to raise her voice to be heard above Mrs. Tiffin's bazooki, slow to pen a plumber's handbook. Slow to pen a plumber's handbook. It's, it's writer's block, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so there was a little, you know, little sort of uh, nod there in, you know, on the first two pages. Um, I always used to laugh at, uh, at actor, uh, actors, at, at writers who said, you know, oh, I couldn't write, I had writer's block. And I go, yeah, it, you know, do electricians get electrician's block? You know, they don't. You know, oh, I, ca I can't do ring mains, you know, to, today. I, you know, I can only work at, you know, wiring up hot water supplies. It, it doesn't happen. And I, and I thought that, you know, because we, we, perhaps writers think we're something special, that we have this special thing that happens, you know, bit creatives. Um, but then all of a sudden, I, I had this, what I think is a great idea for a book about hibernation, and I started writing, and it was just terrible. And it stayed being terrible for like two and a half years. And I'm still trying to figure out what went wrong. Uh, because I'd been writing uh, a, book of, a book a year for 12 years. Um, I loved it. I never felt particularly under pressure. Um, and I said to my editor, um, how did I do that? Because when you, once you can't do something, then you start looking back and seeing uh, how you did it, right? And then you're trying to figure out how I did a, a book a year. Uh, and, and she said, uh, we don't know. <laughs> uh, you came up with it. You gave us a manuscript every March, and we went, whoa, there's another one. Um, 
and we just carried on publishing. I, I, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. But I have this notion that um, to, to be able to write, and this is quite an interesting point again for anyone here who's, who wants to be a writer, is everything has to be kind of right. Um, not only in yourself, but around you. And if something is slightly off kilter, it doesn't take very much, you can actually be sort of stopped from what you, you want to do. Um, and I think, that's, I think that might, have, might be what happened, that for some reason it, things weren't working and I just couldn't write. Um, and it did. It took years and years <laughs> to write that book. Ah, I hate you. Um, so so uh, I, I don't know really what went wrong. But um, now when someone says they have writer's block and I, I just say, I feel your pain, uh, it's really frustrating, incredibly frustrating. There was this one, you know, um, and I'm not trying to pretend that I've, I'm suffering or anything. Clearly I'm not. Um, but there was this one day where I, I, I went to bed thinking, do you know what? I think 13 books was all I could do. And that's it. And, you know, because obviously authors have a, a nerve that they've done and it has to be at some point um, finite. And I thought maybe actually, yeah, 13 books was it. Um, but the following morning it was, right, never say no, Jasper. And I got, got down to it and, you know, it didn't start getting good again for another eight months. But um, <laughs> stick at it. And was there one particular element that let you get into the book in the end? Um, I don't think so. I think... Um, I think I was probably trying to be too serious. I was trying to do kind of absurdist light, uh, and I had uh, this idea. Of, I mean, it's of it's quite dark. I mean, and, and Shades of Grey is kind of dark as well. Um, but I think it, it lacked a sense of um, a, a, a sort of absurdistness and silliness uh, that I usually inject into my books. And, and I think that might have been the turning point, was just say, uh, Jasper, don't try and write something you're not. And I think that was part of the issue about, you mm -hmm. know, trying to write something different that I couldn't do. Um, so I, um, I just said, no, just do what you normally do, and then things slightly started to get better. I've, I've noticed that you said that um, previously about Shades of Grey, that it was mm. absurd heavy rather than absurd light. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but I loved that about this book, is the tone is just right. And it does um, cover some quite serious topics. We've got mm. global warming. Mm. The main character has a facial disfigurement. Mm. Quite serious topics. And mm. yet the tone is so nicely balanced. Is mm. that, does that come quite naturally, or is that hard graph to get that? Um, that's... It's... Getting the tone is difficult, and what's, why it's worrying is, is, of course, I don't know whether I've got the tone right until people are reading it. And, you know, I get, you know, comments from readers and stuff like that where they, they come across some particular aspect in it, and they say, no, we really like that. You know, that is exactly what the sort of stuff we want to read, um, you know, in contemporary books. You know, these are issues that need to be covered. Um, but I don't want the book to be preachy, Obviously, it's got to be a good read, but I like the idea of books being sort of multi-level. So you could read this just as simply as a thriller, and hopefully it functions as that. But if you want uh, perhaps you know, a discussion of, or even a mentioning of things that I consider slightly more serious, then there's that too. And I think that's something that I've done through all my books, is although, yes, it's absurd, it's silly, and there are some very, very bad puns, um, <laughs> some appalling jokes in them, but there is a bedrock of kind of seriousness 
that runs through them. Um, but yes, tone is really hard to get right. And yeah, you don't know until people are reading it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like that you mentioned, I don't think they're bad puns. I think they're great puns. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm sure your readers <laughs> would, would agree. You know, you're really a yeah. master of wordplay. I yeah, think it's puns, very funny. Yeah. My, my favorite in this one was the drug Kenobarbidol. Oh, Kenobarbidol. Kenno great. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a nice yeah. one, isn't it? Ken, like Kenobarbidol. Yeah, because yeah. it actually <laughs> sounds like it's plausible as a drug, you know. <laughs> well, because I, uh, I read it and I thought, oh, I've never heard of that drug. And yeah. then I thought, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Ken or Barbadol. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. So does, does that come quite naturally? Are you a joker in life? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to be a joker with one's own children uh, because no <laughs> matter, you know, even my funniest jokes, you know, really don't, uh, don't, don't work very well with children, um, as they should, shouldn't do, really. Although I do have a, an eight-year-old, and I described her quite, you know, by chance, uh, as a strop goblin, <laughs> right? Uh, and that sort of just sort of suddenly, it just, it seemed right for her. And, and even though she was actually in a strop at that particular time, she kind of gave me that look, which was sort of, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll have that one, you know. And, and she knew what I was trying to do and appreciated it. So uh, it's a good word, isn't it? Strop goblin. It's great. P please use that. I want it in the OED. <laughs> yeah, strop goblin. Uh, but yes, I mean, we love playing with, we love playing with word games, everything like that. And, uh, and it's something I, I've always tried to, you know, mm. instill into children and, you know, giving writing talks, anything like that. Muck around with words, have fun with them. I love strop goblin. My wife calls me grumple stiltskin. Grumple stiltskin. There you go. It's perfect. They are, they are, they are sister words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I really want to dig deeper into the, the world of this book, because obviously mm. it is very funny, there's all this world play, but the actual world is so unique and mm. fascinating. And how do you do that? How do you world build? World building. It's, it's basically, I kind of, I have, I have sort of various tenets by which I sort of tend to write, and this is something I've sort of discovered, you know, later on, rather than actually setting out right at the very beginning. Um, one of them is, is kind of the never-ending pursuit of a lame joke, uh, which um, there's, a, there's, there's one particular joke that is set up, a very, very lame joke, that is set up for 96 pages. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I really hope it gets a good groan when you come across it. Um, but one of the other tenets by, by which I like to write is what I call the logical progression of an idea. And when it comes to world building, that is absolutely the way you start world building. You start with this one idea, hibernation, and then you think, okay, how is that going to work? And then you start sort of discussing it with yourself and writing down little notes and things. And what's annoying about it is that you change one thing and, and it's like a sort of Marty McFly sort of thing. And then everything has to change. That you can't just have us hibernating. You know, it, do it doesn't work. We functionally, we can't do it. We would have to, for instance, uh, bulk up considerably. You know, and I thought, well, we'd have names for when we go to sleep and when we wake up. That's the first thing. So slumber down and spring rise, that's, that's what they're called. So you'd have to bulk up considerably to be able to survive until the winter. Um, and you'd start bulking up on a day called Fat Thursday. <laughs> and, and I kind of like the idea that before that, you could, be, you could do some cycling or jogging or running for a bus. But after that, it would be, be criminally negligent. Criminally negligent. Um, and I also like the idea, of course, that so someone of my BMI in November uh, would be monstrously unhealthy. <laughs> monstrously unhealthy. And all of a sudden, we can invert uh, norms that we see you know, in the world today. And there's a satirical um, edge that comes, that comes through in the pages. But it's all those little things, and, and all the details then start adding up. But the plus point of this, because a, a, a book that's just a world is, of course, you know, just a little bit boring, 
the plus point of this is, is that then it creates new ways of drama and telling stories. Um, I figured that um, there is a, uh, a company called Hybertech that make a drug called Morphinox. And what Morphinox does is it actually uh, crushes your dreams, right? Not like your parents did, you know, when you... <laughs> but, no, I'm kidding. I'm, 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 I'm kidding, really. Um, because um, because uh, mental activity, subconscious mental activity, will actually use energy. And they thought, right, uh, okay, let's 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 crush the dreams, and then you could you could go to uh, go to sleep, maybe you know maybe you know ten fifteen pounds lighter, and still survive uh, until the spring. Ah, excellent! We have a pharmaceutical company. Um, what happens if you don't dream, and then suddenly you do? And all these sudden things start coming into it, and all the elements and all the detail suddenly come together, and they, they sort of conjoin in this little sort of web that creates its own little narrative. Um, and I think that's what I found very exciting about certainly writing this book, and certainly about writing something like Shades of Grey as well. Um, so, yeah, it's that just start, and you just run with it. Logical progression of an idea. Dreams yeah. are a huge part of the book. Yes. Yeah, and the, yeah. the protagonist's quest for Morphinox is really mm. what drives the whole book forward. Mm. So I was wondering if dreams are something that are really a part of your process? Do you ever write from your own dreams? I, I tend not to. I mean, I have rather sort of random dreams uh, when I can remember them. I often... Um, I often uh, I, keep, I keep a diary and I have this little digital device that I write my diary in and, some, and I write it in the evening as, as I'm going to sleep. And, and it's quite interesting because uh, as, as you sleep, you actually enter a kind of little dreamy state because you aren't in the deep stuff yet. And I tend to do that. And, and I just start writing nonsense. And I read back my diary um, you know, from when I'm falling asleep. And it's some very odd stuff, but sadly nothing usable. You know. <laughs> I love those stories of, you know, I went to sleep and I dreamt up, you know, um, you know Kublai Khan. I'm sure it's not true. You know, well, terrible liars, authors. Um, it, it makes a great story. Sadly, no, but I do like the idea of uh, dreams. I like the idea of viral dreams. I mean, imagine a, a, a dream that you could catch from someone else, and it's a dangerous viral dream, and then you're thinking, why am I having this, and is there a reason for it, and is it, is it a random dream, or, or is there some meaning to it? And, and it's starting to invade into your, into your uh, uh, daylight hours. And if, is that bad or is it good? And, and what does it mean? And, and all these things, of course, I can just sort of muck around with in the book in an exciting way. Uh, the cover, actually, it's in this rather lovely book. We have, a, we have a summer scene there, and then we have a kind of winter scene here, and there's a window into the summer, and these two characters sitting behind a great big, um, sitting underneath a great big uh, uh, um, parasol uh, are, is actually the dream. Um, and I based the dream on a um, LNER um, railway poster. <laughs> Uh, because I see things and I go, um, this is another you know, great way of sort of world building or even writing, is I go around and I see stuff and I think I can use that. And whether it's somebody, something somebody says or just like a, it's a poster, a railway poster, and I go, no, that is the dream. That is a dream that, uh, that I want Charlie to have. Um, and that's, that's what I did with it. So uh, it's, it's just from everywhere. Mm. I'm glad mm. you mentioned your uh, device that you write your yes. dreams on, because I saw you working on it earlier. Yeah. It's, it looks like it's something out of the book that's <laughs> yeah. been made. It's very, yeah. very on brand with your devices. Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, I uh, it's uh, something called a Scion 5 MX. I don't know. Do you remember those? Yeah. It's sort of PDAs. I, still, I bought one in 1995. I'm still using it. <laughs> um, but like George Washington's axe, I've replaced it like 12 times, but I, I still have the original one. Um, 
yeah, I find it of invaluable use because you can use this thing just anywhere. It's not like, you know, with an iPhone or whatever. It's a little keyboard and you can thumb type really, really quick. So, San 5MX, if you're an author or just want to <laughs> input a lot of text, I totally guarantee it. But, um, but don't spend too much on eBay for it. Um, about 90 quid tops. <laughs> you never thought you were going to get practical <laughs> advice about, <laughs> about, about using 90s technology. 90s technology. It's a good yeah. tip. It is um, good I tip. actually wanted to slightly dig into the 90s thing. There's a lot mm. of 90s shout-outs in this book, which I liked. Yeah. A bit of Baz Luhrmann. My favourite was uh, Faulty Dormitorium, which yes. is, of course, yeah. Faulty Towers. Yeah. Um, very good. So, again, yeah. is this something that you really wanted to, to incorporate? The, the 90s vibe? I think so. I mean, I suppose, I don't, 90s is not really my sort of decade. I'm more 70s. But I think um, 70s stuff is, is kind of, it's overdone a bit. And I wanted to sort of introduce more sort of 90s stuff. I suppose uh, 40 Taz is 70s, really. Oh, yeah. um, I think the interesting thing about, uh, uh, because when I explained it, and that narrative dare is that um, a thriller set in a world in which, which humans have always hibernated, the, the, the interesting word that, and the key word in that sentence is always. Right, we've always hibernated. So you have to run our history again, because I, I assume that pop culture is the same, but with the difference that if we hibernated. So John Cleese and Connie Booth would have been writing Faulty Towers, a dormitorio is where, where everyone sleeps during the winter. They would have been writing uh, Faulty Towers um, whilst hibernating themselves. So they would have set it in a dormitoria. So it would be called Faulty Dormitoria. Um, in the same way that uh, Shakespeare also would have hibernated. So all his plays would have had hibernation in them. And that's why I kind of like it. And when Zeffirelli made a film of Romeo and Juliet, he would have made it again with hibernation in it. So I can have a lot of fun with things like that. But also, it's quite a good way. And I had a really good question, I remember, um, uh, in London at the beginning of this uh, book tour, where someone said, why do you use Shakespeare so much? And I sort of had to think about it for a, a while. And I thought, actually, Shakespeare is like a standard candle, right? You, you know how it's meant to be, so if I change it in some weird way, then you know, you get a very clear idea of the world in which uh, the change has taken place, if that kind of makes sense. Um, in the Thursday Next series, I have a, um, an audience participation Richard III, right? Sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show meets Richard III, which is, I think it's a great idea, and people have done it, so it's brilliant. Um, but it gives you a very clear idea of, of what Thursday's world is like in the same way that um, I talk about um, Romeo and Juliet and how that would change, and Macbeth, how Macbeth would change. You know, it's not about murdering the king in his sleep, it's about mur murdering him while, while hibernating, which is, you know, the ultimate taboo. So it's like, it's much better play, actually. Macbeth is a much, <laughs> is a much better play if you're in a world in which people hibernate, I think, personally. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Following on from this, this kind of layering of stories or this layering of, of influences, um, I loved in the book that Wales is referred to as the cradle of fable, mm. which is really beautiful. And of mm. course, Wales is your home. Yeah. And are you influenced at all by Welsh myth or folklore? Welsh myth or folklore? Um, yeah, to, to a certain extent. Um, it's all set in Wales, the book. And more of my books have been sort of moving into Wales as I've lived there longer and longer and longer. Um, I'm not Welsh, I'm English. Um, but uh, I, I kind of like that idea. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm slightly worried that, um, you know, whenever people talk about Wales and fantasy, and, uh, it's generally about sort of Mabiogion and that kind of, um, you know, kind of way of looking at, at fable. But there are an awful lot of stories that have started up in Wales um, that I wanted to 
wanted to use, but also I wanted to... It's a big shout-out for Wales as well, I think, and I really wanted to kind of do that as well. So um, not so much, perhaps, I make up my own fables a bit in mm. this, so not perhaps from classical Welsh mythology, but certainly my own brand of Welsh mythology. New yes, fables, we you see. We want yeah. new fables, don't we? With the winter folk. With the winter, winter volk, as they're known. Volk, winter volk, mm -hmm. yeah. The, the idea, of course, that if you, if, you, if you hibernated, there would be a huge mythology built up around uh, uh, hibernating, the creatures that come out in the, in the winter. And that's like another book in itself. You know? Not that I'm saying I'm writing a sequel. I'm not. I'm um, going to stay well away from you know, series books. I want to finish a series because I have no <laughs> idea what it's like. It, <laughs> could be really exciting, you know. Um, yeah. I was going to yeah. ask about that, actually, because I would yeah. love a kind of companion book, mm. which would be the folklore yeah. from this world. Yeah, I know. It'd be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, <the m> <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be such good fun, because mythology is great, and you just invent your own mythology. And the, the wonderful thing about mythology is a lot of the time it's very random, uh, and, and random is unbelievably difficult to write. Um, that's why if something really bizarrely random happens to me, I quit very quickly make a note of it um, because it's so, so important. I, I heard somebody used to, used to use as an opener for a conversation was, um, so what do you make of the Atlantic? <laughs> Which I think is a brilliant opening. I mean, how would you, how would you counter it? Well, I, I, I like it a great deal, you know. Um, and it's, it's that sort of thing. So the Gronk, which is the, the, ma the main myth that, we, that, I, that I deal with in Early Riser, um, the Gronk, which is a kind of nod towards the Groke from, um, uh, from the Moomin Troll series, because there's a little bit of Moomin Troll midwinter in here, clearly. And I was a big fan of the Moof Moomins and Tove Janssen as well. Um, and so I have the Gronk, and the Gronk has a, a sort of peculiar like of Rogers and Hammerstein uh, <laughs> musicals. So if you're sort of wandering around and you're in the midwinter, like this, and it's, it's very cold, very unpleasant. And all of a sudden, you can, inside your head, you can hear the lonely goat herd, you know, <laughs> sort of yodelay, yodelay, and you go, uh-oh, you know, Gronk, close by, watch out. Um, but also, the Gronk, fortunately, has another habit of wanting to fold, f um, uh, wanting to fold laundry. So, so if you're worried about the Gronk attacking you whilst you sleep, you just leave a basket full of unfolded laundry outside your, your house. Uh, and that will hopefully keep the Gronk occupied uh, and leave you well alone. But that's the sort of lovely randomness that I kind of, that I, that I think mythology should have, you know. It's such a, I, I don't know, I particularly like that idea, you know, just it likes to fold, fold, um, fold laundry, you know. But I don't know, no one knows why. But I, I like wondered it. if that came from the superstition about vampires, that they mm. count things. So if you throw ah. rice down, yeah. you can run away from the vampire because they have to count Yes, I hadn't heard that. Oh, I wondered if it was a no, conscious No, no, I had not heard it. that at all. In fact, I probably pinched it from, I think there was this terrible movie called Leprechaun, um, <laughs> which was awful. Um, but there was, I think, one, and it might have been maybe that one or another one, but there was this sort of evil leprechaun. And, and if, it, if it chased you, you know, it was going to kill you. But if you throw through its shoe, your shoes, took off your shoes and threw them behind you, it would stop to polish them. <laughs> and I thought that is so wonderfully random. You know, I, I, had to, I had to use that. Is that from Leprechaun, the movie? Anyone? No yeah, one's admitting nods. that they've seen no it. No one is admitting they've seen it. I think it's a very bad film, but that one brilliant piece of little sort of touch of genius.
Yeah. Good to have different influences from different oh, places. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Actually, I was going to follow up on that about music because mm. um, I had Tom Jones stuck in my head for almost the entire time I read this book. Okay. Um, and I was wondering, is is music a big influence on your work? Um, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, I'm not a. Uh, well, I mean, everyone's a big fan of music. I I have a very eclectic taste <laughs> in music, um, the same way I have an eclectic taste in books. Um, I'll read anything that's good, essentially, um, and I'll listen to anything that I. I think sounds good as well. So if you were to put my iPod on shuffle, you'd probably find some very odd, you know, I, I love the humming chorus, you know, from Puccini, but similarly, I, I like, you know, What a Man uh, by <laughs> Salt and Pepper. So uh, have I got that right? It mm -hmm. is Salt and Pepper, What a Man. You yeah, need so to sing it now. What? Gonna sing uh, it. Well, I couldn't, what, remember <laughs> the words? No, I can't. I think it's a lovely song. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I, and I, but I can't make up my mind. I have to ask them. I can't make up my mind whether it's, um, whether it's actually, they're talking about someone or it's an ideal, you see. And I don't know, but I have to ask someone who knows, but I don't know yet. Um, but it's a lovely song. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, I have a very eclectic taste. Uh, what was the question? Oh, music, that's right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm probably more visual, uh, but I do, I do like the, the, the idea of putting music into books because you don't generally get music in books, and I try and sort of inject a soundtrack um, into the book. So, you know, having the Hammers and Rogerstein, <laughs> Rogers and Hammerstein in there, I think was, was quite fun. Um, putting Tom Jones in there is quite fun because also I like the idea of... Um, I, I'm sort of reopening railways that got closed in the beach enclosures in the 60s. So this is the second time in you actually go on a journey that you can no longer do, but I think you should be able to. Um, but I like the idea of um, you're in a steam train sort of chuffing along through the, uh, the Welsh mountains uh, with the sound of Tom Jones. You know, that sort of appeals to me. I also like the idea of, um, uh, you know what Rick Rowling is? You know, when you <laughs> click on a link and you get through to Rick Astley doing his dance, you know and um, a singing Never Gonna Give You Up. I also wanted to put a, a, a rickrolling, a, a textual rickroll in the book, so you'd turn over the page and, and there he was, you know, Never Gonna Give You Up. Um, but we couldn't, get, we couldn't get in contact with Rick Astley to clear it. Uh, we definitely couldn't use the lyrics because they're part of the water, Waterman stuff, um, but we thought we could use just you know, Never Gonna Give You Up because it's the title of the song and that's, that's okay. Uh, but I couldn't get in touch with him. And I kind of didn't want to be, you know, trolled by Rick Astley because he was upset. Although that would be quite a proud boast, I think. <laughs> but in the end, I, I left it out and I replaced Rick Astley with Carmen Miranda um, and with the fruit hat. Uh, because again, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a pop culture reference that we've, we're kind of losing. And I want to, you know, bring her back like George Formby, of course, in the Thursday Next books. So, um, but yeah, I'm, music is, I think, always there. Is yeah. Help Yourself on your iPod? Uh, help Yourself, yes. Oh, yeah, almost certainly. Okay. And Delilah. Yeah, Delilah. <laughs> no, I'm not such a big fan of Delilah, oh, okay. I have to say. You know, I mean, of the story, I suppose, yes, but not, not, of, the, <laughs> not of the Tom Jones. Yeah, <laughs> Help Yourself, it's unusual, that sort of stuff. Yeah, because yeah, just, of course, I had that in my head for mm. quite a lot of the book. Yeah. Um, so in a moment, we're going to open up. I'm sure you all have lots and lots of questions. Um, but I had one more question for you. Mm. There's a line in the book, which mm. I think is an excellent line, which is, make as many mistakes as you want, just never the same one twice. Mm. And I was wondering if you have a particular mistake that you've learned <laughs> a lot from. Ooh, God, yeah, where to start? Um, I, I, that was, uh, it's a, it's, I think it's a pretty good piece of advice. And I, I had that when I was first starting out in the 
camera department and my, um, you know, the, the uh, clapper loader who was training me, I, clapper loader, it's a silly name, yeah, but um, loads film into magazines and puts the board on. That's what a clapper loader does. Um, and I was a camera trainee and, uh, and Eamon, who was, who was my loader I was working under, and that's what he said to me. And he said, make as many mistakes as you want. Absolutely fine. He said, just don't make the same one twice. And I, I, it's good advice, you know, to try, obviously, that way. Um, Ones that I have made over and over again, I don't know. Probably, probably trying, to, trying to write something I couldn't. Um, uh, the most frustrating thing about being an author is, is that the rate at which your skill increases sort of like that, perhaps, if you're really lucky. But the rate at which you kind of want to increase it and is kind of more like that. So you can never write the book you want to write. You always write the book you can write. And there's, there's a difference between them. And I think always I, I want to write a book that is slightly better than the book I can write. And I'm always trying to do it, and I'm always disappointed. So, um, so I, think, uh, I think, yes, that's, that's probably mm. it. But it's, uh, it's an interesting one. And again, for anyone who, who here who is an author, uh, who is trying to write, you know, and trying to be an author, and this wonderful, wonderful profession, um, and you're reading back your words, and they, you're going, ah, oh, this is terrible. Great. <laughs> that is really good, uh, because if you're reading back your words and going, ah, that'll do, it probably won't. Um, f- knowing in the creative industry, if you know that what you're doing is, is not brilliant, it's a great furnace to make yourself write better. You know? And I think I'm always trying to write a better book, and I think you know, one always should as an author. But frustratingly, that brilliant, perfect book, I think, is sort of just out of reach. Mm. But it wasn't when I first write it. First write it. <laughs> it wasn't when I first started writing. Um, you know, because I thought, you know, in that sort of, you know, sort of chutzpah you have as, an, uh, as a fledgling writer, you know, ah, oh, brilliant, I can do this, I can do that. And then slowly reality sort of uh, starts to hit and, and you realise that that great, fantastic novel that you want to write might be just out of my reach. But I will try, I will try and write it and can you continue on trying. Yeah. On that excellent note. Thank you. Um, going to open up to questions. We have got a handheld mic, so if you wait until you have the mic, just so that we can all hear you. Who is our brave first question? Lady here. Yeah. Hi. I'm really looking forward to reading the new book, but uh, can we go back to um, Shades of Grey? Mm. Now, seven or eight years ago, uh, you said you were, you were thinking about the sequel. I wondered how that was coming on. Oh. Ah. <laughs> No pressure. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that's that's because uh, I I I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> um, today, uh, uh, I've no, this this comes around comes around a lot, and often when I'm I've been c- going around, I've had a two week tour now, and I and I, I was starting the talk with the elephant in the room, uh, which always got a good laugh. Um, uh, when apart from the time there really was an elephant in the room, uh, and that was like big and grey, and yeah, we didn't know why it was there. No, Sh- Shades of Grey 2. Uh, this is an interesting one because uh, I think it was my seventh book I wrote. And, uh, and, I had, uh, it, and I think it's probably the book I'm most proud of, although my favourite is The Fourth Bear, just for silly knockabout fun. Um, and and I, like, I, like, I like Shades of Grey a lot. Um, and I kind of genuinely, genuinely thought that it might do quite well, that people might actually quite like it. Uh, it they didn't. Uh, Thank you, thank you. I mean they in a broad sort of, you know, um, book sale kind of way. 
um, the sales were kind of a little, a little bit disappointed. So uh, I thought I would, you know, carry on and do the uh, s the sequel straight away. But actually, I went and did something else. But as the years have gone by, I get more and more emails about Shades of Grey than anything else I've written. Anything else I've written. So the answer is yes, definitely. Um, what I'm doing at the moment is I have another standalone that I've almost finished, and I think that's probably what's going to come out next year. I was kind of pleased that, that managed, I managed to write, I think, about sort of 50,000 words in three months, uh, which was great, because then I was thinking, ah, brilliant, I'm, I'm, I'm not stuck in this you know, writer's blocky thing, whatever it was. So that's good. So hopefully that's coming out next year. I have to do um, Dragon Slayer 4, uh, because the, the, my publisher in America is you know, a little bit miffed uh, that I haven't been writing it, so I kind of have to do that. And also, again, because I want to see how what it's like when I end a series. You know, the sort of clouds will part, and you know, and I'll hear music. You know, <laughs> Tom Jones, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, uh, and after that, I think it's Shades of Grey too. Shades of Grey too. So hopefully, in maybe t maybe three years. Sorry, but if you've waited this long. Uh, <laughs> And I have no idea what's going to happen. I got a few ideas. Uh, when, I was r when I'm writing, um, uh, I, I never have any idea what the next book is. So, I mean, although Thursday Next is meant to be a series, I never have any plan from one, series, one book to the next. Uh, each book, I just start writing and just make it up as I go along. Um, so with Shades of Grey, I don't really have a huge plan for it, but I do know that clearly the fallen man means something. The apocryphal man definitely means something. The fact that everything has a barcode seriously means something. And the swans, there's got to be something in the swans. Uh, if that sounds confusing, someone hasn't uh, read the book, um, it is confusing. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so about three years, perhaps. Yeah. Thank you. So maybe 2022 Edinburgh International Book Festival event. Y yes, it could be. Yes. Yeah, yes, 2022. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Will you look forward Can't to it? it cr um, time creeps on. Next question, please. Oh, over here, yeah. Which one? Okay, it's um, Jasper, I hear your uh, new book um, may have something to do with rabbits. Would you yes. like to tell us about that? Oh, my goodness. I, <laughs> I, um, hi, Lucy. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was... I'm in two minds about... I'm, I'm always in two minds about, um, about sort of talking about uh, new, new projects. Um, but, um, since you ask, uh, yeah, the standalone is essentially what happens when a family of rabbits move in next door. Um, <laughs> But they're, they're large rabbits, and they, uh, they wear clothes, and they talk. Um, and it takes place in, in, in Herefordshire, which is, shall we say, um, slightly conservative. Um, and of course, the, the rabbits moving in next door are met with the usual sort of, you know, complaints. You know, well, you know they breed. Um, you know, they'll, they'll fill up the local school, you know, like this. Um, and it's my character um, actually has to deal with the fact that these uh, rabbits have moved in next door, and, um, and he has no issue with rabbits, but the people around him do. Um, you know, I won't say, you know, it's satirical, but there is a, a political party uh, called UCARP. Um, uh, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the United Kingdom Anti-Rabbit Party. Um, uh, run by uh, a man called Nigel Smethick. Um, I don't know why he's called Nigel. Um, I know why he's called Smethick, because I think the Smethick by-election of 1964 is something that, again, needs to be back, brought back to perhaps uh, prominence in our lives. Uh, you can look it up later. Um, but anyway, but that's what it's about. It's a nice sort of little satirical sort of jab 
Um, but I like the idea of rabbits moving in next door, especially if one of them is very like the Cadbur Cadbury's caramel bunny. Um, so it, it might be quite interesting. It might be quite interesting. Yes, they all got uh, anthropomorphized during a what's what I call a um, an, an an anomalous, no, anomalous, I think it's the word, um, anthropomorphizing event uh, that no one can really explain. And they think that it might have a satirical component to its uh, the creation. Um, but they weren't just the only animals. Uh, there are a few other animals, um, most notably um, a badger and a Dalmatian, who got together and uh, became a comedy duo called Spots and Stripes, um, which, which wasn't very funny, but certainly original. Yeah. So uh, that might be out, hopefully that might be out next, uh, next year. But it should be good silly fun as well, as we were talking about, a little bit of seriousness as well. Mm. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Um, should we go here? Sorry, I'm just making you run yeah. lots of back yeah. and forth. <laughs> Get your steps in for the day. I think if, 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 if there's anyone holding a baby on their lap who's called Mike, that is a handheld mic. Isn't it? Cradling. I know. This is instantly what I think about when someone says handheld mic. Um, whenever I see a, a sign on the ground, you know, painted signs on the ground? You know, whenever I see it, I stare at it thinking, if I were just to put my suitcase on one word, could I make another sentence? Right? And the answer is often yes. There was a, a staff parking, and if I put my bag on the S, it was taff parking. Right? So only Welsh people. <laughs> which I quite like, and author, authorised parking only. If you get rid of the eyes, you've got author parking only, <laughs> which is what you should have. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, that's actually great, because I, I wanted to uh, catch on uh, uh, something you were saying about wordplay, that you obviously yeah. spend a lot of time doing that, and you create these word worlds, but also that you do a lot of things with book conventions, so tunnels through footnotes and mm. you know, worlds that obviously turn stories upside down. It reminded me very much of someone called Mark Dunn, who I don't know if you've come across, has written several books like that. Mm. One called Ibit, which is just a book about footnotes. Mm. It's, a, it's basically you've lost the text, but the footnotes remain. Mm. Or a book called LMNOP, where letters drop off every month in a town, and then everyone, everyone's not permitted to use those letters in a letter. So yeah. you get letters that become 14 letters long because 12 letters disappeared. I wonder if you could talk, therefore, about how you do that. Is that something that you pick up from other people as well? You just think about the particular wordplay you use. Do you have particular concepts in mind that might have been drawn from other authors or other people you've come across? Um, from other authors? I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, I, think I sort of get, get this from everywhere. And, and I think it's... Um, I think what I found is that... Um, and again, this is something I, I, I often um, talk about when I'm, I'm giving uh, sort of talks and lectures about writing. I have this lecture I give, which is called The Last 2%, right? And it's the last 2% of your book. Um, and it's not like, you know, sort of spell-checking. It's about adding a sort of magical charm pixie dust that lifts the prose slightly higher. And I can't teach that. No one can teach that. That has to come within from the author you know, themselves. And, and the way I, 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 I sort of explain it is I say, um, if, you can, if you can say it, you can, re you can write it. If you are the person that you are, you know, writing about, then you can do it. So uh, I don't know whether I'm explaining it very well. But what I say is that I've spent, you know, most of my life reforming words on... on <laughs> on, um, you know, billboards and things like that. And, you know, holding, holding a hand over, 
you know, uh, over a notice, again, to make a different sign, about using words, about making up new words. Um, scribination is what I refer to when I'm, I'm writing during the winter. Uh, scribination, I think it's a great word. Um, and I think because I've been doing that all my life, then when I started writing, the, the wordplay then came naturally. Uh, and I think if you want to train yourself to be a writer, you, you have to train yourself to do this on almost a daily basis, is to go out there, look at the world, and not look at the world as it really is, but kind of how it interprets itself in your head. Um, and it's a difficult thing to train people to do, but I think, you know, go out there, look at things, and go, okay, that's not this, it's that. Start playing with things in a weird kind of way. Um, I, I, it's one of the only talks that I give with actually a, um, um, a what do you call it, um, on, a, you know, on a computer. What a are those? PowerPoint. What? PowerPoint. PowerPoint, thank you. God, lost it. Uh, PowerPoint. It's one of the very few ones I do with a PowerPoint. And I get to the end and I show a picture of a, um, uh, uh, a pinecone. A pinecone. And I said, right, with everything that I've said, what is that? Right. And hopefully, someone at the back goes, is it a pangolin egg? And I go, exactly. And, and that's the kind of association that I think really, really helps when you're writing. Because if you can take one idea and another idea and then join them together, there's this sort of wild sort of sense of fusion and excitement when a new bizarre idea comes off. But if you can't look in the normal world and see the delight and the beauty and the treasures that are out there and the alchemy in which we can merge those ideas together in some new and exciting way, then I think it's quite hard to actually make you know, lift the pr prose with this kind of, you know, sort of fizz, this sort of effervescence, if you like. It, it's a bizarre talk. I do it every now and again, um, but it's trying to explain that kind of sense of looking at the world. Um, but no, I've always been interested in, in wordplay, Al always had great fun with it. So I think what is, writing is a kind of extension of that. I just bring it into the writing because I can't not, because I have, it's like a silly sense of humour. You know, uh, infantile, actually, you know, if I'm being serious. There's a lot of infantile jokes in this, you know. Um, but I, I kind of like it, and that's, that's, that's who I am and what I do. So I'd be stupid not to put it in. But luckily, I mean, all you people here clearly share a, 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 a silly sense of humour. You know, a bazooki. It has to be a bazooki, doesn't it, from Monty Python. You know, we, we all speak the same language, you know. But, yeah, anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Thank you. Good. Um, any other questions? Oh, yeah, do you want to choose? Anyone you like? Oh, no, no, no anyone, <laughs> anyone at random, please, who's ever had their sure, arm up the longest. Uh, green T-shirt? Green T-shirt, over here. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you'd ever considered setting a book somewhere outside of the real or imagined sort of British Isles, or do you think this Britishness, whether real or imagined, mm. is kind of too integral a part of your, of your books to do that? Ah, setting a book outside the British Isles. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know really. I mean, I suppose the Thursday books take place in, a, in, a, you know, another, in another world. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, this is my home and I've lived here for 57 years now. So I kind of know it, you know, a little bit, I suppose. Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, probably because I, I really wouldn't know it that well. I mean, if I set a book in, I don't know, sort of America or Algiers or somewhere like that. Um, it'd be good for a Malta. So I often want to go to Malta and do it. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, actually. It's, n it's never particularly crossed my mind that I should. Um, and there's, there's plenty of stories I can tell here in the UK. Um, and I think there's a certain sort of Britishness to the humour as well um, that does actually travel. 
uh, it does definitely travel. Um, so I think I'll probably stick to, stick to around here but, uh, and make, make Brit Britain into this sort of bizarre place in which, you know, there's, there's, you know anything can happen. <laughs> anything can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Probably got time for one or two more. Should okay. we say over here? There's, uh, over there at the back With and the then glasses. perhaps right up at the top there. We've persuaded our book group to do the air affair. They're yeah. fairly conservative. Yeah. We <laughs> okay. What single thing would you like them to take away from our book group session? What would you advise us to say? Right. Yeah, the air affair um, for your book club, which is a little bit conservative, you say. Um, well, I don't know really. Uh, I, it's quite interesting. I mean, I, I've I've been to I got, I've been invited to talk at, at book uh, clubs, and um, and sometimes if they're if they're quite close, then I'll go. Yeah, sure, I'll go along there. And I, and sometimes I foolishly think that I go there because they want me to talk about the book. Um, but <laughs> quite often they actually want to tell me what's wrong with it, um, uh, which is uh, it's it's a very interesting dynamic. I went along to one book group, and um, and they were clearly thought that it was nonsense, the air affair, and it was just frivolous, frivolous nonsense and just didn't get it from page one. Totally don't get it. And if you don't get it, you, you, you're never going to get it, really. Um, but there were two people in the, in the book group who actually clearly did like it and totally got it, but they kept on being sort of, you know, slapped down uh, <laughs> by the, by, shall we say, the sort of matriarchs who were running it, which I thought was a great shame. And, and I said, look, let's go and talk about the air affair, and we did. Um, but no, they, they, they told me, the other, the other people running it, they told me just what was wrong with it, that I should be writing something more mainstream, you know. I don't know, sort of Jilly Cooper or, I don't know, something like Jodie Pico or, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they thought, really. Uh, we had to, I had a quite an interesting conversation because I heard that um, Shades of Grey was, uh, was studied in a book group um, in which there was another book with a similar title. Um, LAUGHTER um, and, and, and I, I wasn't there, and I don't know, and I haven't heard a report, but that would be very interesting, <laughs> wouldn't it? You know, to have eight people studying 50 shades of grey and then two studying 49 fewer shades of grey, as I call it. <laughs> and that would make for a very interesting discussion. No, but if you're going to take away anything from, uh, from the, the series, uh, from the Thursday Next series, it's that basically writing is fun. Reading and writing is fun. And the classics can be fun. And let's reclaim the classics, perhaps from being study texts, you know, which makes them, I think, rather sort of uh, um, dry and perhaps a bit you know, uh, boring. If you're told to read Jane Eyre, that's a completely different experience through choosing to read Jane Eyre, because it's actually a really good book. You know, uh, you know if you sort of kind of ignore, you know, gloss over the fact that, you know, Edward has a mad woman in the attic, mad wife <laughs> in the attic. Bit slightly dodgy, but maybe everyone was doing it then, I don't know. Um, but no, it's about, it's, it, it's all about sort of sniggering at the back of English class, and I think that's essentially what the Thursday Next series was all about. Yeah, okay, good. Um, did you see things? Oh, yeah, at uh, 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 the back, I think you had your hand yeah. up first, right at the back. Uh, thanks very much. I just want to say, I really think you've some of the most interesting and best named characters in, <laughs> in modern literature. And I was wondering, how do you come up with those? Do the names come to you first and you create the characters afterwards? Or mm. do you create the character and then you have to kind of come up with the names for them? So are some of the names of your future characters already floating around in your head? Yeah, um, naming characters. Uh, yeah, this is, um, it's kind of a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because you, you are really saying that the book is a silly book. Uh, when you do it. So sometimes I'm, I kind of pulled back slightly on um, Shades of Grey and I just gave people names of colours as surnames. 
Um, I like silly names. Long tradition in British uh, nonsense sort of writing about silly names. Um, often I'll see a name and I'll just jot it down in my silly name book, uh, and then I'll use it. I'll just and it will just find a, uh, an owner. Um, Thursday next was a name that was just sitting there on my list, uh, along with um, I think Sturmy Ar no Sturmy Archer character, yeah, um, uh, and what was the other one? Um, uh, Landon Park Lane. Um, and I thought Landon Park Lane was a quite a good one because he's he's kind of he's kind of a little bit like me, so he's you know slightly posh. So I thought. I thought Landon Park Lane, having the double-barreled name, was quite good. But Landon Park Lane, is, of course, is what happens when you throw, throw a six from Supertax on a Monopoly board. So it makes his, his name sort of rather nonsensical, but it does explain why his uh, parents are called Bilden and Halson, you know. Um, and you can get into sort of, sort of deep kind of, you know, sort of, you know, punny names like that. There was, a, there was a character called Paige Turner as well in the Thursday Next series. And this was like one pun too bad for me. It was like one, I'd just gone too far, because it's too obviously bad a pun. So what I did with it, in the, in, I thought, I must be able to use this. You know, and it goes in, back into that narrative dare idea. I must be able to use it somehow. What shall I do? So what I did is I had throughout the, the air affair where, where she features, um, she's either referred to as Paige or Turner. Right, but never both. But I think three pages from the end, there it is on the page, Paige Turner. And you, if you hadn't have noticed, you were punned by stealth. <laughs> and, and that's part of this kind of silly fun I like to have with, with names and characters and puns and, and reader sort of expectation. Um, but no, I just write down a, a long list whenever I, whenever I see one. I think, ah, that'd be a great name. Let's, let's use that. Decoy Duck was another one I came up with. <laughs> haven't used that one yet. Jeffrey Decoy Duck, I think, you know. Like, like DeForest Kelly, you know, Decoy Duck. It just sort of makes sense. Yeah, but, but thank you. Thank you. That's good. In case yeah. we were wondering what is one pun too far. One pun too far. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know. I don't know where they can go puns too far. I do like puns. Uh, there was one, my favourite pun that I made up, or maybe I didn't, maybe I heard it somewhere else, is that uh, marmalade is a preserve of breakfast. <laughs> that is a quality pun. <laughs> See, it's not a groaner, it's actually a quality pun. Marmalade is generally the preserve of breakfast. Yeah, it's nice. Works well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we have time for one more Ooh. question. One more Should question. Oh, yes, let's, let's go here. Uh, a few years ago, I joined a book club and enthusiastically recommended the air, uh, the air affair. Mm. And I created two extremely enthusiastic fans for you. Mm. They've read everything, mm. as I have. Um, but now I've noticed from some of the others, when I recommend a book, they go, oh, <laughs> oh that sounds normal. Yeah, we'll have that one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the lady over there, she may get an interesting reaction, but yeah. at least there's a small proportion of a, a mm. book club that will really get it. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you for doing that. Thank you for promoting the books. Yeah, it's, it's a strange, it, it is an odd phenomenon. I mean, you could say it's sort of like Marmite, really. Um, you, you kind of either you like the books or you get it or you don't. I mean, you know, I don't want to categorise anyone, but this is a really good way of categorising people. <laughs> um, you know, don't want to put anyone in any pigeonholes. Uh, yeah, me too, me too. But I want a really simple one, right? And I think there are two people, like, you either like the Muppets or you don't like the Muppets. Right, and I like people who like Muppets, right? And I'm not saying I don't like people who don't like Muppets, but I think you're a bit suspect, you know. 
if you can't fully appreciate, appreciate the love triangle between Miss Piggy, Kermit, and the other pig, you know, uh, or even that, you know, the, the little thing going on between Miss Piggy and, and Kermit. Um, so, you know, my, my dad, you know, bless his soul, he's no longer with us, um, and he didn't really have a huge sense of humour. He never used to tell jokes. He, he had one joke about three ducks in Belfast, but I won't tell you because <laughs> it's terrible. Um, but... Uh, and I won't say redeeming quality, because it makes, it makes him sound like he, he wasn't a, a good person, and he was a very good person. Um, but uh, he never used to laugh at very much. But when we were watching uh, The Muppet Show, and I mean the proper Muppet Show, the one back in the 70s, you remember that, a few nodding heads, the really good one with the guest star, you know. Um, he, used to sort of, he used to come in and go, uh, uh, Jasper, are, are you watching The Muppet Show? And I went, uh, yes, yes, Father, I am. And he said, uh, call me for pigs in space. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then go off again. Um, and I always loved that about him, you know. And I said, well, don't you want to w- wait for the Swedish chef? And he went, no. But, but pigs in space, as soon as he pigs in space. Dad, he went straight in, and he's going, and he's going, ha, 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 ha
Kirk, Kirsty Logan here is talking tomorrow. You've got your Thank own you. event, haven't you? So, Thank you yes, very much. definitely. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.